Did you know that a little over a week ago, the European Union decided to move forward with their latest proposed updates to the EU copyright directive, which include requirements for websites to affirmatively scan for copyrighted content? It's been just about universally lambasted as internet-destroyingly awful, but all signs indicate that the EU is barreling ahead with it. Well, we're not going to talk about that today, but something else that's just around the corner in the EU and is even worse. It's generically called terrorist content regulation, and it's Article 13 on steroids, at least according to our guest today, Daphne Keller. My name is Emery Rohn, and you're listening to Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. This is another conversation recorded at State of the Net 2019, this time with the Director of Intermediary Liability at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford, Daphne Keller. I had a great time talking with Daphne, and I think you'll enjoy this dive into some of the biggest non-privacy issues facing the internet. I swear there's no privacy talk in this episode at all, or hardly any at least. From the already mentioned terrorist content regulation to the question of whether or not Twitter is or should be considered a modern-day public square, and what that means for free speech and censorship. I'm going to get right into it, but don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind, as well as the Internet Law and Policy Foundry at ILP Foundry. We'll be releasing information soon about applying for the next class of fellows, so all you early career professionals listening, and especially any students out there, stay tuned. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Daphne Keller at State of the Net 2019. But I want to thank you for joining me today, Daphne. Uh, for our listeners, Daphne Keller is here. She's the Director of Intermediary Liability at Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society. Nice job pronouncing all that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I, 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 I was a little concerned I would have flubbed it, but um, you study the way that internet content platforms and the laws governing them shape information access and other rights of ordinary internet users. Is that a... That is right. I think I might have pulled that from your bio <laughs> even. It's an excellent summary. <laughs> so you were on a panel earlier today, not on the internet governance panel, uh, but instead the... Uh, sorry, what, what was the title of your panel? It, it was long and it, it had the word amplification in it and it probably Ooh, okay, had well, the word platform in it. it. Yeah. The, the, the title is Online Expression, Balancing Moderation Act and Amplification, and the Role of Government. Do you want to unpack that for our listeners a little bit as far as what that title is even referring to? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the overall conversation about platforms and their role in shaping our speech in what a lot of people consider sort of the most important public forums of our age um, it's a huge conversation. Mm -hmm. it, it did not fit inside of an hour. <laughs> we uh, had, I think, the very first episode of Tech Policy Grinder. The second one might have been uh, entitled The Most Important Law on the Internet. And we had a discussion with, I think it might have been uh, Tim Lorden and uh, Ali, another one of our fellows, about CDA 230 and all the complications therein. Yeah. So this, this panel, there was a good chunk on CDA 230. I mean, partly because we're in Washington, D.C., it, it gets more focused than the equivalent panel might in other parts of the country or, or outside the US, obviously. Um, but there was a good chunk on um, e European developments, including the terrorist content regulation. Uh, there was a good, well, there was the beginning of a discussion of, of amplification and, and what it would mean for platforms to have a different kind of legal or moral responsibility for things that they 
algorithmically amplify. Huh. That one, though, I think, you know, you could go two, three hours deep on that oh, and not sure. hit yeah, bottom. There's some, there's some books that need to be written on that already. I'm sure <laughs> they're being written. That are being written right now, <laughs> probably by people at this conference. I mean, I, I've got a lot of questions sort of spinning off of my mind just from this already. Um, you talked about the... Uh, Sorry, what did you say? The terrorist? The EU's, ter well, terrorist content regulation is what most people are okay. calling That's it. Sort of the, the generic term for this this bundle of regulations that folks are considering? It's a specific regulation. It's just that the formal names for pending laws there are very, very long and unwieldy, and so they all wind up having a shorthand term that sort of gets conventionalized over time. So it is moving very rapidly through the EU legislative process. There's a really important vote that's going to happen on March 21st. Okay. Um, and depending what happens there, odds are pretty good it becomes the law before the end of 2019. So what does this look like? Well, it applies to any hosting platform that hosts third-party content, um, no matter how big or small. So that would be Facebook and YouTube at one end, and you know maybe a local news site that lets you post comments or something even smaller than that mm -hmm. at the other end, um, as long as they offer their services in Europe, which might mean just being accessible in Europe or might mean more than that. Interesting. Uh, the, it, it covers them. And it gives them sort of right out of the gate an obligation to have somebody on the ground in the EU who authorities can go to to take down content in one hour. So, you know, if it's 2 a.m. in your local time when the French or Hungarian police want something taken down, you need somebody in Europe who can do it right then and there and get it done within an hour. Wow. And once you've received one of these orders, you are in a new set of obligations, one of which is to take proactive measures to prevent terrorist content from showing up again wow. and to detect new content so that you've never seen before. It's like the copyright screening on steroids. It's like the copyright screening on steroids. Wow. And it, you know, it applies to sort of platforms no matter how small and the definition of terrorist content is, it, it's not only, to my mind, un unclear and, and hard to understand what it covers. It's undefinable. It's, it's yes. not the same definition that was in any of the previous laws. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> so, so literally nobody knows what it means. Oh, but God. that's okay, because it'll be interpreted by some really capable local authorities who are not courts, they're probably law enforcement, um, and then interpreted by platforms. So, wow. you know. So, I, I mean... Oh, wait, there's more. Oh, Can please. I do the more? Oh, Can please, I do the more? Please, okay. please. So you have to build the filters, and then you have an ongoing reporting relationship with these local authorities where once a year you give them a report on how your filters work or how your takedown system works, and they say whether that's good enough or not. And if it's not, then they tell you how they think you should improve it. Uh, so it's, it's a very serious sea change in yeah. how uh, expression and content regulation happens, and it's... It's very problematic for a bunch of obvi obvious reasons, but, but one is just what we know so far about platforms um, trying to filter extremist content is very, very little. There's this thing called the terrorist hash database that four of the big platforms built a couple of years ago. Um, it uses digital fingerprints 
of images and videos that have been found to be extreme terrorist content in violation of their terms of service. So you go in the database for violating the terms of service. Um, and then there are, as of now, some 80,000 hashes in there representing some 80,000 pieces of content. There are 13 platforms using it. And so if a duplicate gets uploaded, they stop it um, from being distributed. In, in theory, um, they are supposed to be having humans look at it. And the big platforms have said that's what they're doing. Um, but so I think it's hard I mean, to expect that. This is just so crazy. It's, I mean, like, crazy isn't the right word, but it, it flies in the face of like everything that I had been taught about platform liability. Uh, and I mean, uh, granted, that's like taught CDA 230, and you know, um, we talk about how it's you know the most important law on the internet, and how it literally enables user-generated content because in the absence of it, then. It, it would have placed these sort of affirmative, like, screening duties on platforms. I, is this just a United States and Europe, like, philosophical disagreement here, or economic disagreement, or is this representing, like, a, a shift in perceptions or values? It's a little bit of all those things. Um, you know, the every country balances free expression against other priorities, including physical security, right, which is what's on the line here, um, or privacy or reputation. We, we all balance them differently, and we all prohibit some stuff, and we all allow some stuff, and you I, know, I the U U.S. is more permissive. bring up FOSTA and <laughs> SESTA and FOSTA from last year, right? I mean, in the past year alone, we saw that in the United States, and you are more of an expert on that than I am, but it's a whole different kind of platform liability, right? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that goes to one of your other points, which is, is this just, um, is this the zeitgeist like is yeah. is there a change where governments are more interested in regulating platforms and i think the answer is clearly yes right on, on both sides of the atlantic yeah. and it's just a question of well what would be smart regulation and what would be not so smart regulation um and and i think you know because the U.S. has a big tech economy and lots of um, tech experts to go and talk to lawmakers. It's just easier for them to arrive at something that, that, that sort of goes with the technical realities of operating platforms better. I think in, in the EU lawmakers in Brussels, they don't want to hear from Google and Facebook and big tech companies on this. Like, There's not a lot of trust there, but there aren't a bunch of other local companies to to come talk them through it either and so the you know for this sort of economic reason the, the odds of coming up with something um, that most small platforms would consider a big problem are higher you know we were just speaking with Lee Tien and uh, on the panel that unfortunately was going alongside yours um, he spoke about the he was reacting to this sort of economic discussion or framing of feasibility of regulation versus the sort of appreciating the practical reality that consumers live in today. It, I was just thinking about the the obligations and responsibilities under the terrorist uh, screening discussion, and I'm thinking, you know, it, it is so clearly crafted from the GDPR model of accountability, but it just doesn't, like, it feels like they started from this, like, accountability, you know, tr trust and verify model. Um, 
that. Yeah, well, I mean, it has some things, I think, explicitly borrowed from the GDPR, including the 4% of annual global turnover uh, fines and the, ju the wow. jurisdiction so the provision. The so it's an extraterritorial, and mm -hmm. it has the same fining structure as the mm -hmm. GDPR. That is crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do think both of them come out of a European regulatory tradition where their expectation is these regulators aren't going to be unreasonable. Like, th yeah. they're not really going to levy penalties that high unless a big company is being really, really you know, bad yeah. from their perspective. But the GDPR depends on this regulatory infrastructure that's longstanding. You know, DPAs, they're yeah. professionals, they've done this forever. The GDPR changed some things, but you know, that's basically the same model as the, the 95 directive. Um, but the terrorist content regulation isn't using an existing set of regulators. It's using these to be determined local authorities and probably their police. So it, Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, you, you know, an another thing I would say, sorry not to interrupt, oh, but an another thing I, I think in, is in common with the GDPR here um, is it's very easy for lawmakers, and this happens here too, for lawmakers to make laws with a model in their head of what a platform is, is Facebook mm -hmm. or it's YouTube. You know, it's a big, powerful company that can invest a lot of money in compliance and that, you know, for content can hire 10,000, 20,000 moderators or build a filter, even if it's not perfect, at least they yeah. can build something. Um, and, and when you write a law with that kind of company in mind, odds are very good you're going to write a law that's really hard for small companies to comply with and that effectively you know, entrenches incumbents and makes it less likely that there are going to be little competitors who can offer services that compete with the big guys. So it seems like a big focus of State of the Net this year is privacy. It seems to be like the sexiest topic that everyone's talking about, I think. Maybe I'm a little no biased. No way. It's content Maybe. regulation. I'm a little biased. So I was going to give you the opportunity <laughs> to slay that, uh, put, plant that flag in 2019 and say, is, is content moderation the big? I mean, it, it seems like there are these really enormous, you know, shifts going on right now that are not the elephant in the room, maybe like the the secret big issue, uh, are you? No, I mean, it's both. We, 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 we both win. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I love winning. <laughs> and, and then there, there are just so many overlaps between areas of law um, where, like, not many of us know all these areas of law at once. You know, there's a lot of intersection between competition and privacy. I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal kind of surfaced that. Um, there's a lot of connection between competition and expression issues. People who are suing, you know, Google and Twitter and Facebook saying, hey, um, it's so important for me to be on your platform, I effectively can't exercise my speech rights unless I'm there. I would love to unpack this a little bit because this is something that I think really interest is really interesting because, um, you know, it, it's much like privacy is something that one day is being shouted at by the or shouted at or shout you know held up by the right and then on the other side is held up by the left um you know the idea that twitter is a public forum and therefore must carry or must allow milo or insert you know whoever um a voice on that platform is a, a clearly a big part of your work so i'd love to just give you the floor there and sort of yeah so i have a big paper about this um, that is that is out now. It's on the Hoover Institute website and on Lawfare. Um, and it looks at 
all the cases so far, there have been 26, 27 of them in the U.S., and then another handful outside the U.S. where people say exactly that. They say, you have to host my content because otherwise my free expression rights are effectively uh, interfered with. And here, right now, at this political moment, it's seen as a conservative issue. Um, globally, you know, there are claims from indigenous groups in Brazil. There are claims from a guy who wanted to post some anatomically detailed art in France. You know, it's it's not innately a political issue necessarily. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and what I do in the paper is I sort of I, I unpack the First Amendment law in this because there. First Amendment rights on both sides. You know, the platforms say, hey, wait, we have a First Amendment right not to carry speech we don't want to. Mm -hmm. And the users say, but we have a First Amendment right to speak in what we think is a really important public forum. Um, and there's not that much law that speaks to it. What law there is? Really fascinating comparisons to cable mm -hmm. law and the, the, the idea that, you know, every, everything new is old, everything old is new again. I love, you know, when I just hadn't even been aware of that set of cases. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so it's these cases are very analogous in that um, there's a private owner of communications infrastructure, and then there are people who want to speak using that infrastructure. And this and was, the, by the way, back in the this is in the nineties. Nineties, okay. Um, and the the cases people know well are the Turner cases, um, which which said. Yeah, Turner as a cable company has First Amendment rights, but in this case, we're going to override those in order to make them carry local broadcast signal because we think the government has an important enough interest here. Um, and, and so you can see how that's you know, very analogous to the questions coming up now. And in much the same way, um, the, what is a, on the surface a question about speech, you dig one level down and it's a question about competition. Like, is there some place else you can go to speak? Is this really the only place? Um, and, and what um, is most amazing to me, having spent a year deep in these cases, is there's a new one. It's before the Supreme Court right now. <laughs> it's called Halleck, and it asks whether local public access cable channels, which you might be too young to remember, <laughs> but they still exist. I remember um, Simpsons talking about it. <laughs> it. It asks whether they're public forums. It's asking really the same question that's in, in these um, platform must-carry cases. And I think we'll get a lot of very interesting insights out of it. Well, I think that you've thought much more about this than I have. And I have certainly been on both sides of that, uh, you know, issue, I guess. I don't think I really know how I feel about it. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, I guess. I mean, is Twitter functionally a public forum? And should it be? Or Yeah, I think, so I spend part of the paper looking at, like, what would it mean if these claims succeeded? Mm -hmm. Or if, you know, or if Congress said, we're changing the rules? Um, would it mean that Twitter has to carry everything that's legal, everything that doesn't violate the First Amendment? Mm -hmm. And if it did, that would mean that a lot of really offensive speech, you know, that people consider very harmful, Holocaust denial, threats that aren't quite illegal, you know, a lot of stuff that most people want off of Twitter, mm -hmm. and that Twitter wants off of Twitter because advertisers don't like it either, um, and they don't That's want their users to affect it. Yeah, I mean, the role of advertisers <laughs> in all of this. Maybe we can just put a pin on that and talk about that next time. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, so if Twitter is truly a public forum, the way that it, the town square is a public forum, then 
everything that we've, that most people have been asking for for content moderation from Twitter for the past however many years goes up in smoke. Right. Um, so that's weird. Um, but then you can imagine ways to say, try to split the baby and say, well, you know, maybe a platform um, has to carry everything, but they don't have to amplify it. Like they don't have to show it in search results, or they, you know, there, there are lots of baby so splitting solutions, but they're thornier, all weird. Right? Like, Super thorny. Product design is like, thorny. When was the last time that your feed was just like a chronological display of the most recent, you know, post from your friends list? Like that's just not how. Yeah, it's been a content minute. Content has been provided to us for like a decade almost, or something like almost. Yeah. So, and and if you know if there were a category of speech that's like has to be there somewhere but doesn't get first class treatment um who who decides what that is like do we have a new regulatory agency defining what is fairness defining so what fall, is reasonableness does it all fall back to terms and conditions <laughs> Well, I mean, terms and conditions is where it is now. Right. Like, if I the mean, terms and conditions prevail, then the platforms keep winning these cases, and which, which I think is what's going to happen anyway. Is uh, that, is that your best outcome? <laughs> because I can't think of anything better, it probably is. But I'm, I, you know, I, I really understand where people are coming from, saying. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, there, there are a couple of really big information gatekeepers here. Hmm. You know, and the, the other thing, and this is sort of, so half the paper is about that law okay. um, and about what models might look like. And then the other half is about how um, platforms become basically vectors for government power. Like there are lots and lots of removals yeah. going on now that are nominally voluntarily, voluntary, and they're nominally part of the terms of service, but they're a result of government pressure, pretty clear, like, well-known government pressure, mostly in the EU. And, and so I, I think there's a connection between the platforms having unfettered discretion to take things down and them being very useful vectors for states to do things without having public accountability. So we're talking about these platform liability issues. Um, you know, I would be remiss to mention your time, or to not to mention your time at Google, which was a sizable portion, almost like right out of law school or nearly out of law school, right? Um, I was four years out of law school. Uh, I started in 2004, and I was there until 2015, so I saw a lot of change. I, I counseled a lot of yeah, products. I mean, in that time, didn't they drop the good? <laughs> Or was it in that time where they became Alphabet, or was that after? That was, that was after. Um, you know, when I started, the products were basically web search and ads and desktop search, and there was starting to be maps, you know, <laughs> but, but there was no YouTube, you know, there yeah. was no Android. Yeah. Um, and by the time I left, you know, I left right around the time of the, the Right to Be Forgotten ruling in Europe. I did kind of my last hurrah was was working on that. Um, you know, things had changed quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it is it is undeniably a very different co company, <laughs> obviously, like structurally even at this point and formally as well as, um, you know, in the zeitgeist that Google's name does not mean the same thing to the same groups of people as it did back in, 20, in 2004. Um, we... You know, I think that a lot of our listeners are uh, young folks, and um, you know, I like to think that we have a sizable number of advocates and you know, folks that uh, aspire to fight the good fight and to you know, go into this field of thorny legal issues um, and try to do 
good in the world. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, I guess, uh, you know, in 2004, it it really did feel that I think, you know, this was a company that had "Don't Be Evil" as its mission statement, that was talking about you know connecting Wi-Fi hot air balloons around Africa, and uh, it, it felt like this was that was the pinnacle. I think the height of the Silicon Valley is going to come and solve everything. Field. Uh, feeling. It's not really that anymore. So, you know, you're at Stanford, a student comes to you and is seeking advice. Are, are you still, what role did the big five play in that discussion now, I guess? Yeah, so, I mean, so there are plenty of students who come to me because they want to wind up in-house at an internet company, um, a big one or, or a small one. Yeah. Um, and that, that's always strange to me because, you know, that's not how I got there. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? I, I was just a nerd and I liked this stuff. And, you know, I did a, a year of academic work on this. And I was actually, I was about to take a job at, at Public Knowledge here in D.C. when this Google thing came along. And I realized, like, hey, wait a minute. All the issues I care about, they're they're working on them and they're building stuff. That's you really know? exciting. So was, I, yeah. I lucked out. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't somebody who started out knowing I wanted to go to a company. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I think if you want to be in this space, um, and I'm kind of stealing a line here from my former colleague, Mike Yang, who used to be uh, general counsel of Pinterest, like, it is so valuable to spend time at an NGO and time in government and time in-house, uh, you know, and time in, at a law firm. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things are useful. In, in, it gives you perspectives on different sides of the issue. It helps you know what the people you're negotiating against are thinking about if, if what you're doing is negotiating. It helps you know what solutions are possible and what the tools are. Uh, you know, it's kind of like having clerked makes litigating, you make you a much better litigator. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very useful to get all of those perspectives. Um, I guess what I was trying to get to is, um, you know, rather you're at Stanford now, and the students that you're mentoring that went, want to get to the internet companies, I think have, um, you know, they're starting off in a lot better place than a lot of students that also would like to get into the tech policy world. Um, you know, I certainly didn't go to one of the, the big schools, and uh, I think that it is extremely valuable to give mentoring and help to the rest of us. <laughs> and so I'd love to hear any, um, you know, advice you have for those students that aren't at the most prestigious schools, but that want to be covering all the bases or, you know, as much as possible preparing themselves for these kind of roles or opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's, it's hard to give generic advice because okay. there's so many yeah. possible career paths here at this point. Um, but I don't know if you saw this or if this is what prompted the question. A, a, fellow academic in the field recently tweeted something about wanting to be especially available to female students for mentoring. And I thought about it and I was like, well, I'll talk to anyone, but if you are at a non-fancy law school, come talk to me because like the population here is a little uniform. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, I think seriously. getting diversity of background into tech lawyering is so important right now. And that can mean ethnic diversity, it can mean gender, and it can definitely mean socioeconomic diversity and and it can mean you know did you come out of a school where you like come out feeling entitled to a fancy job <laughs> you <know>? yeah <laughs> because <laughs> like exist. i said that's like. a monoculture <laughs>
So State of the Net is just about wrapping up. This is, I think, the fifth or sixth interview I've done today, and I think the panels are just about at the end of it. Um, you've clearly staked your flag in the platform liability being the issue of the day. Um, I was wondering if you've had any closing remarks on the, uh, on the topic. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just think it's important to know that this isn't a blank slate. Like we're not making up, or we don't have to be making up brand new laws as if we have no experience in this area, although that is what Congress has done lately. Um, but you know, around the world, there have been a number of different models. There are countries where platforms take things down based on a court order. You know, there, there are models uh, that involve more stringent process within the intermediary before something comes down so that the accused person gets an opportunity to defend himself or herself and, you know, the, the person making the allegation might get fined if they make a bad faith allegation. There, there are lots of tools for refining intermediary liability rules. There are things out of the human rights literature. There are things out of the laws in other countries. Um, and, and so I just think it's important to recognize that um, this is a field. It exists. <laughs> you know? it, it, it's the, there are resources, and we can do a good job, um, and we don't have to start from scratch. Yeah, and I just want to close by saying that I feel like so frequently some of the most interesting people we talk to and some of the most interesting topics that we talk about when I was in law school, or not when law school, when I was an undergrad certainly, I didn't even know that it was a field. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know the job was possible. So if you're listening to this, if any of this is interesting to you, guys, a field exists. <laughs> you can work in it. Y'all can be this. And um, I love my job. And I, I love my job. Wonderful. Daphne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.